How can churches do a better job of understanding and loving pastors' kids? Barnabas Piper is our guest this week talking about the unique challenges of growing up as the son of John Piper. It's all in episode 32 of the Church Leaders Podcast. Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, where we're helping you lead better every day. And now here's your host, podcasting from scenic Colorado Springs, Colorado, Andrew Hess. Well, thanks for tuning in to episode 32 of the Church Leaders Podcast. Our guest this week is Barnabas Piper. Barnabas grew up as one of the children of well-known pastor and author John Piper. Barnabas shared about his book on how pastors and churches can take better care of a pastor's children. You'll want to hear what his dad did as he was growing up that is most meaningful to him now as an adult. And now, here's our conversation with Barnabas Piper. Barnabas, thanks for being on the Church Leaders Podcast. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to be on with you. Uh, You are the son of John Piper, and we wanted to have you on the show today to talk about the unique role of being a pastor's kid. You've written about this, and uh, we wanted to have a conversation today about uh, how we should think about um, the pastor and his children. Absolutely. You know, you've written about uh, what it's like to be a pastor's kid, drawing on reflections on your own life, and then also having conversations with many other pastor's kids. And uh, one of the things that I saw early on in your book is that you described being a pastor's kid as an enormously challenging position. I think a lot of our listeners might be surprised to think of it as enormously challenging. Um, can you tell us about why you see being a pastor's kid as, as something that's so challenging? Yeah, I, uh, I want to start off by saying that it's it is distinctly challenging. Um, it's it's also a significant blessing. I mean, there's there's it's a two sided coin as many things are, but the challenges themselves uh, come from I think. The initial great challenge is the fact that pastors are called into ministry. They feel this real distinct calling from God, and they they pursue it, and they bring their families with them into all of the challenges of ministry. And a lot of lay people may not know what those challenges are, but I can assure you they are many. The pastor's kid doesn't have any say in it. We simply are along for the ride with our parents calling. And so all of that stuff that kind of gets piled on the family, uh, you know, that stuff rolls downhill, if you will. And then uh, the other significant challenges have to do with being really well known of in in a bubble. So the bubble of a, a local church. And that's true whether it's a church of 100 people or, you know, 10,000 people. Everybody there knows more about the pastor's kid than they do about other kids at the church. And that leads to different sorts of expectations, expectations of behavior, expectations of biblical knowledge, expectations of uh, having a, a strong family context or a strong relationship with God. All things that they're good things, but they're unfair because it's a different expectation than, than are for our peers. Mm-hmm. And let's talk about those expectations. As, as you were growing up, what were some of the things as you kind of interacted in your father's church that you felt like these are things that I am just expected to do? And, and how, how personally did you process that? Yeah, that it's funny because it, I remember going all the way back to first and second grade, even starting to realize that as the pastor's kid, uh, I needed to be a little bit different than other kids. And sometimes it was very explicit. You had those handful of people who loved to say things like, you can't do that, you're a pastor's kid, you know, no running in church, or you can't use that word, or whatever it was. But they always used pastor's kid as sort of the trump card for why I wasn't allowed to do those things. Um, But sometimes it was a lot more innocuous than that. I mean, I remember an instance of being in, is elementary school, so first, second grade, somewhere around there. 
and doing a Bible trivia game in Sunday school and just knowing that I was expected to answer the hard questions because that's what the pastor's kid does. And I, I, in some sense, I really enjoyed it because if you're good at stuff, it's, there's, a, there's an element of pride with it. But it sort of nagged at me because I knew that it was a different expectation. And then as I got older, you know, got into middle school and high school, then it became more of like a student leadership kind of thing. You know, was I actively involved in all the volunteer efforts? Was I leading in the youth group and things like that? And again, I loved church for the most part. So this wasn't dragging me kicking and screaming. But if I ever, it was one of those situations where I wasn't allowed to have a bad day. I wasn't allowed to skip something. I wasn't allowed to to sort of ease up. It was just the pastor's kid is supposed to be and do those things. And so it just, it became a situation where my identity was very formed by what the expectation was for me to be. Mm-hmm. And and how did you how did you kind of process that? I mean, as a kid, so many things happened to us, and we don't really mm-hmm. understand how that impacted us until later as we as we look back. And so, as a kid, you know, were there ways that that you kind of you know acted out, or are things that you know as you look back, are there things that that that, that formed you? For me, th- there are lots of pastors' kids who do act out. You know, there's there's sort of the um, just sort of the the rebellious pastor's kid that's a bit of a stereotype but stereotypes come from somewhere and they're the ones who recognize all of this sort of false expectation or the hypocrisy of it or the legalism and they just lash out so they they quit going to church or they 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 do whatever it takes to sort of get under people's skin and say I'm not going to do that and that wasn't me I internalized that stuff much more which meant that I tended to just sort of keep my own counsel on things of on th- especially on things of the heart, sin-related things and identity-related things. And so that meant that uh, that I just didn't listen to people very much. Like they would tell me things and I would play along and say nod and okay, that's fine. But in inside I was sitting there just thinking, I don't really care what you're saying right now. I'm not, I'm not really buying in. That remains a struggle to this day because those patterns and those grooves were sort of formed early. But like you said, it wasn't until later on after college that I began to with you know gain the maturity the perspective and have some experiences that allowed me to sort through a lot of those things mm-hmm. and I think your experience is probably even unique to other you know pastors kids that might be listening um, because of you know the fame of your father you know mm-hmm. and, and can you talk us about because I would imagine that as you were growing up, you know, your dad probably grew in popularity. Um, you know, I, a lot of people probably in our audience didn't know about him when you were younger, but then I think it was probably with the passion movement and different things where mm-hmm. some of his books kind of shot to prominence. So talk about that, you know, kind of the difference of, you know, the typical pastor's kid. And then when when your dad or your, you know, that, that pastor becomes famous, how, how does that impact things? <laughs> Yeah, no, that's a really interesting distinction. So for me, um, when I was born, my dad had been a pastor for about three years already, and the church was a few hundred people, maybe four or five hundred, if I, you know, I'm estimating. Um, so good size, but not big. By the time I graduated from high school, it was a couple thousand people. So it's just sort of steady growth over those years, and all of his sort of fame and prominence hadn't really um, hadn't really impacted me up into high school because I was still just sort of the pastor's kid at a good-sized local church. I knew that he was well-known and that he was doing some of these speaking things. That didn't really come into play until I went to college. 
Now, granted, I went to Wheaton College, which is the same place he went to college, and so I sort of brought that on myself. I can't blame anybody else for that decision. But, I mean, when I moved onto campus, so the first day at Wheaton College, my freshman year, um, there were people waiting for me, and they'd been waiting for two or three hours because they heard that John Piper's son was coming, and they wanted to help me move in. And so right off the bat, there was this realization that something is different here. There's an awareness of me. And that that was a challenge during college a lot. And I, I didn't have the maturity to be as gracious as I should have been to a lot of people. People maybe didn't handle it as well as they could have in terms of kind of inserting themselves into my life. But, uh, but I wasn't as gracious as I could have been. In the years since, I've, I have learned a lot, but also struggled a fair amount to figure out how to balance Again, being gracious with their appreciation for my dad's ministry, but also helping people realize I am not a mimic of my dad. I have my own opinions and my own ways of doing things and my own perspective on life. And I mean, to this day, probably once a week, I get somebody who, who will hit me up on Twitter and say, I can't believe you would say or do that. What would your father think? And I just want to be like, I am 33. Two years old. I'm a father. I am a published author. I am a lot of things. And one of them is not beholden to my dad. And that's not any shot at him. That's just wanting to sort of gain, again, my own identity in, in how I express faith and and lead in the church and those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Take us back. You know, I love that situation in Wheaton. How would, as, as you went to Wheaton, how would you mm-hmm. have preferred people to people to treat you? That's yeah, that's a really good question. That's a challenging one because and and again, for for listeners, this can apply to how you treat a pastor's kid in the local church context because again, I think this is very scalable to size. So, sure my dad is well known to hundreds of thousands of people, but he is to them what the local church pastor is to the 200 or 400 or 800 people. And so that the relationship there is very much the same. I guess the thing that I would have loved is I I know that I couldn't help what people were aware of. And so I'm not sitting here thinking, I wish they hadn't known who I was. That's unrealistic. But just simply to have the perspective of, while that person is, in this case, John Piper's son, he's also his own person, and you do what it looks like to start a friendship. You strike up a conversation. You find out what you have in common. You find out what the person's interests are or fears are or struggles are. And sometime a friend, sometimes a friendship will be forged very deeply. And sometimes it'll be a casual, friendly relationship because there's just not the friend connection. And that's what a pastor's kid needs in the local church, especially is those handful of very deep friendships, the, the people they know I am safe to be me around. I can speak my mind. I can speak my insecurities, and and I won't be judged because I'm so and so's child. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, you know, I think uh, like let's let's back up a little bit. So, in your book, tell mm-hmm. us about some of the things that um, you know, well-meaning pastors mistakes that they might make with their own children. So, yes. so as the pastor is raising his kids, what are some things that maybe pastors just need to know? Like, as you wrote this book, I know that one of the one of the groups you're writing to are pastors with mm-hmm. kids and, and helping them um, raise those kids. So what are some things that, you know, mistakes that pastors make as they're raising their kids? And I do think most pastors are well-meaning. That You know, that phrase you used. I, I There are a very small number of pastors who are just terrible parents, but that's true of the entire population. 
most pastors are trying their hardest. And so this is not to sit here and take shots and say you are uniquely awful as parents. It's to say you are in a uniquely difficult situation. So maybe a little more focus and intentionality needs to go into things. Um, I think the mistakes that pastors often make is that the big category is putting ministry above family. Um, I was called to a church to pastor, so that is where my best effort goes. And the fact is that your family is your first ministry. Your children are your, your wife is your first ministry. Your children are your first ministry, probably in that order. Um, and, and so your marriage, your children come first. Sometimes you will have to drop everything and go take care of a church issue. But if that becomes a pattern... Uh, and you're regularly leaving your children behind and missing out on, on moments in their life and key things, that's problematic. And you need to look at that and you need a group of people around you you can lean on to fill in some of those gaps. I think the other thing is that pastors often pastor at home instead of parenting at home. And what, so that means that when a child has a question, and, and maybe it's a question about their faith, or especially once they get middle school, high school, there's more of these these deeper questions, some of them are more or more doubt driven and pastors can preach a sermon on that. You know, ask, you ask, you ask a question and, and instead of a give and take a relational interaction about why do you feel that way? What are you worrying about? What, what is this thought process? It becomes a three point sermon that's 17 minutes long and pastors just know this, your children tune out of your sermons. They don't enjoy hearing them very much, especially not at home. And that's because they hear you preach all the time. And so you may be an excellent preacher, but you need to parent your children, not pastor them in that sense. And the same goes for, for uh, counseling kinds of things. What, what a child wants when they come to their parents with a relational struggle, you know, my, my girlfriend just dumped me or whatever it is, is a loving conversation, a shoulder to cry on, those kinds of things, not uh, a counseling session. That's for people at the church when they come into your office and they sit in the chair across from your desk. That's not for your children. Those, so those kinds of things. And then, yeah, and, and then I think another big one is just some pastors, and I think this is more to those who are very studious and again, we mentioned earlier sort of that conservative, theologically driven mindset. So this is probably more that crowd. Uh, they don't have any fun hobbies. And you have to have fun hobbies if you want to be a decent parent. Like you have to have something you can include your kids in. Because what does a child love more than, than doing what dad really likes? Dad loves baseball. I want to go to a baseball game. You know, dad loves biking. I want to go for a bike ride with him. Those kinds of things. So things develop some hobbies you can do with your kids and, and reading in the same room doesn't count. Mm. Yeah, and I think that's that's true because you, what, you're, what you're mentioning is uh, that a lot of pastors will have these things that they kind of typically love to do, like reading, mm-hmm. writing, these types of things, even preaching, you know, that it's it's so easy to um, to make everything a, oh, here's a, you know, Bible lesson that needs to be learned. Yeah. And so I think I, I love that of, you know, sometimes pastors need to, you know, be well-rounded in order to, to do that. Can you tell us, like, what was something that, as you look back on your own life, something that your dad did that that you look back like that was really good. It was really good that we, you know, were consistent in, in, mm-hmm. in this. The best memories I have of my dad, and the, and the reason I, this is a good thing is because there are many of them. It wasn't just a one or two time thing was he regularly made time 
to play with us. So I have three older brothers and a younger sister. And he continued this uh, all the way through till my sister was, you know, too old to be played with and as a child anymore. He would make time to to kick a soccer ball or throw a baseball or shoot hoops or or wrestle or play Legos or board games, whatever it was. Um, and consistently, it was it was a regular amount of time after dinner, uh, just sort of built into the day. And those memories are some of the most fond ones that I have. It is the activities that I did with my dad. And I, I don't know that that's normative for everybody, but I think it's pretty common. So those times when we would be down at my grandma's place in Georgia and be able to go fishing together or those kinds of things um, stand out in my mind. And he very consistently uh, made time for those things. He also was generally at things like my sport, you know, sporting events. So I, I played, I played baseball, I played football, I played basketball, and uh, he was regularly there, even if it fell on a sermon writing day. There was the only times he missed, and I don't remember many were, were as if it was just he just couldn't get a flight back in time, kind of thing. So he was consistently plugged into those aspects, so the the play time and the things like that, and so that was uh, those were really significant things. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about a little bit about um, you know how pastors' kids wrestle with their own faith. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think there's a lot of uh, research out there about you know pastors' children walking away from the faith, but even just you know whether that it, that's the outcome or not, but just the idea of wrestling with your own faith, and especially in that bubble that we talked about earlier, how how can pastors' kids you know grapple with their own faith when it seems like all all eyes are on them? Yeah, that's that is a very very difficult thing. So my my situation again, I I don't mean to make this about me. It's just I'm my best point of reference as a pastor's kid. I did spend a lot of time talking to other pastors' kids before I wrote the book, several dozen, just to basically get the sense of am I crazy or did we all kind of experience similar things? And the answer is yes, we all experienced somewhat similar things. Um, defining and and, and and grappling with your own faith is really difficult. As uh, I mean, it's difficult for anybody. And church kids in general feel an expectation to believe and act and say the right things. For a pastor's kid, you just ramp that up significantly. And so what you find is that there's there are some pastor's kids who rebel and say, I don't believe any of it. There are some who who just fake it really well. So they know they don't believe, but they just play the part really smooth, sort of a chameleon-esque personality. And then there are some who don't even know what they believe. And that that's more the camp that I fell into. On At, at one level, I, I did, I followed Jesus. I believed in Jesus. I wanted to serve the Lord. But at, there was another level at which I didn't realize that all the answers that I had, and they were many because pastor's kids tend to know the right answers, I didn't know which of those were genuine and which of those were just rote. I didn't know that about the gap between the things that were actually shaping my life and the answers that I gave. And it wasn't until I kind of came face to face with those during more of a crisis of faith in my 20s that I began to see that having the answers was not the same as those things fueling my life. And so, and and I, a lot of that is directly because I was a pastor's kid. And so 
I just consistently came back to answers, 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 instead of being able to say, do I genuinely know and love Jesus Christ in the kind of way that will will help me overcome sin and overcome temptation and make sacrifices and do those disciple kinds of things that I wasn't doing in all areas of my life. Mm-hmm. And to those those pastor's kids who might be listening and are like, oh, wow, you know, you can have a crisis of faith and be a pastor's mm-hmm. kid. What do you, like, what advice would you give to, you know, to those listening who would say, man, I, you know, I, I feel like I've been in, a, you know, a crisis type of season. Where where do you go? Who do you lean on? What are the things that you should do during that season? Or, you know? Yeah. Because it doesn't... I think- Pastors kids tend to have the, uh, we tend to isolate ourselves a little bit when it comes to things like crisis. We may be very, very sociable people, but isolate that aspect because it's not safe. And I would say to pastors kids, whether whether you're still at the church your parents are, are in ministry at or um, or you're, you're out on your own now, is you need to get over that hump. You need to you need to discipline yourself to say that isolation is a lie and it's probably hurting my faith and I need to find one or two maybe three people and I say small numbers because there's just not it's not realistic to say, you know, a whole group who you can sit down and and wrestle through these things with and who won't look at you and go, how can you think like this? You're the pastor's kid. You need to find one or two or three people who don't who don't care. They just simply say I love you. I care about you. Let's talk through these. Let's wrestle through this, whatever those questions are. Um, And then I think the other thing is, and this is a really, really difficult thing to do, is to back way up and try to set aside all the flannel graphs, all the, the... the Bible lessons, all the, you know, the adventure Bible story books and whatever else, all that stuff that you, that you have your head filled up with, try to set all that aside and, and ask yourself this, who is the Jesus that I actually want to follow? What does the Bible say about Jesus? So you go to Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and you see what did those pages say about Jesus Christ as a, as a man, as God, and reintroduce yourself to Jesus because that that was the situation that I found myself in and that was where things began to click for me because all of a sudden instead of answers it was a person and that was the transformational thing that's really good An- another group that you write to in this book i think what i thought was really powerful was people in congregations yeah so so you know you've got the pastor and his kid but then also people in the church what do people you know, who, who, who attend our, the, our churches, what do they need to know about how they can love the pastor's family well? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think congregations, generally speaking, people in the congregation love their pastors. There are, again, there's a small number of, peop- of people with ill intentions, but that's not the norm. The norm is that people love the pastor, they love the pastor's kids, and they're not setting out to add pressure or, or pile on. And so uh, this was in no way sort of a, I hate the church and everybody and it's a jerk kind of thing and I don't ever want to come across that way. However, there are a lot of instances where people in the church don't realize what they're doing to the pastor's family and don't realize how they can bless the pastor's family and the pastor's kids. And I would say the first one is this, is I mean, this is going to sound, I mean, this is Christianity 101, but it is pray for the pastor and the pastor's family. Um, if you're in a position to pray very personally, so you know specific things, do so. If not, just know that they're under pressure. Know that they're under strain and pray for those things. 
because if you're praying for somebody, it's very hard to not care for them. That's a, I mean, that's just, it's a basic principle of, of love and care and spiritual life. Um, I think another thing is, and this is specific to pastor's kids. Uh, if you would not ask a question of another kid in the church, don't ask it of the pastor's kid. So I had people regularly come up to me and ask me about pretty personal instances in my life. You know, whether it was going to prom or a football game or getting my bike stolen or whatever it was. And I didn't even, I couldn't even remember these people's names sometimes. It was like, that's, it just felt stalkery. And again, their intentions were kind. They knew something, they were, they were striking up a conversation, but that's a weird question. Let's just be frank. That's a weird place to start. So don't ask a question of a, a member of the pastor's family that you wouldn't ask of any other person in the church. So because just because you know about them is not the same as knowing them. And then I think I think the third thing is if you are in a position to befriend a member of the pastor's family, take that role very seriously. That's a position I found myself in in the last several years. So I'm not in I'm not in pastoral ministry now. I work for Lifeway Christian Resources, uh, doing leadership development and things like that. So supporting the church, uh, but not on a pastoral staff currently. And I have been really privileged to be a friend to some pastors. And that means that I can be the person that they can be a confidant to. They can speak freely about their doubts or their struggles or their fears. And, and pastors have them and pastors' kids have them. So if you're in the position to be that friend, take it very seriously and be very conscientious to give them a trusted, safe place, but also to be a, a strong spiritual and, a, and a relational support to them because you, you are a rare person if you're in that spot. Uh, so that's that's a very powerful and special thing. Mm-hmm. You know, we live at a time where there are, you know, the term celebrity pastors. You know, there's a lot of yes. pastors who get very famous, and the internet and just the time we live, I think, kind of lends yeah. lends to that. As you know, as you've grown up, and, and as you as you think about this book, what's your perspective on that that just that phenomena that we live at a time where. We're, we're, we're prone to do that, to like to yeah. latch on to a book or to, you know, messages. I mean, there's probably a lot of people listening who have listened to a lot of your, your father's messages and, right. and sermons and things. Are there, are there some cautions that you, from your perspective, would have on that? There are. Uh, I have very mixed feelings about it because, again, I mean, my, my own father has a very significant internet-based ministry, so... People, you know, thousands and thousands of people listening to his sermons and reading his books and, excuse me, and things like that. Um, and the impact of that is untold. I mean, and and the same is true for lots of other pastors. Some some who are doing fantastic work and others who uh, maybe not so much. Some who are who are maintaining great faithfulness and others who have made some great mistakes. Um, the the downside of all of that. And this is true. This is not just for pastors. This is like you said, this is the internet culture we live in. We get into everybody's business so deep and we analyze their actions. And so you you get an instance where a pastor falls from grace, it might be sexual sin, it might be leadership driven kind of thing, it might be a financial, uh, you know, they p- stealing money or whatever it was, they fall from grace. And there's a public free forum that's largely anonymous for people to say awful things and to put forth their opinion. And 20, 30, 40 years ago, when that happened, it was very, very painful, but it was very, very painful for a small number of people. 
a single church, a single community, a single family. Now, people are offended when a pastor who lives 1,500 miles away from them falls from grace. They, they, they get offended and speak into that. And I don't know that we have a right to do that. I think we need to think very carefully. I mean, some of it's simple golden rule stuff. Put yourself on that family's position. What do you want people to say about you? Probably nothing. How do you want people to respond to you? You want them to speak with love and care, if at all. Awareness is not the same as license to address an issue. Just because I know something is happening does not give me the freedom to speak into it, to criticize, to to whatever the situation is. And so I feel very strongly, or very I feel deeply for those families of pastors who have fallen from grace because or or just even who are doing a great job because their their families are under scrutiny if my dad had gotten to fame in the current internet milieu uh my siblings and i would be far more screwed up than we already are and that's saying something um because because we went through struggles but most people didn't know about a lot of that because they shouldn't have and there was no outlet for it. So all that to say, I think I think golden rule kind of thing, how would you want them to treat you? And what right do you have to speak into these situations or even to pay attention to them? I think we need to discipline ourselves not to pay attention to the private lives of people who are not our friends. That's a, that's a very strange thing to do, to dig into the private lives of people who are not our friends unless they have put their own life forward to say, here's a biography or something like that. Mm-hmm. I think it's really good. And I think you know that, that kind of speaks to a lot of things that we see going on in the Christian culture where, where it is kind of you know through blogs and, and all these types of things. Um, you know, it can drive a lot of traffic um, that way, but that thinking about that, you know, that love is the default and assuming the yeah. best – um, I, somebody told me that once that we should always assume the best about people and not, you know, be enticed by, you know, little bits of things that we hear here and there. And, so, and even if you find yourself assuming the worst, just keep it to yourself. I mean, there's just because you have Twitter doesn't mean you have to tweet. I love Twitter, but I I would like to think that I tweet. Uh, I don't tweet judgments about people's private lives on a regular basis, which is something that we, we even in the church, maybe especially in the church, feel, feel very free to do, probably too free. Mm. Well, Barnabas, tell us, I know you have a new book out. Can you tell us a little mm-hmm. bit about the, the new book that you just released? Yeah, so the one that just came out this past summer is called Help My Unbelief, Why Doubt is Not the Enemy of Faith. And it's loosely related to my book, The Pastor's Kid, that we've been talking about in the sense that... Um, a lot of those those questions of doubt and how can we how can we be sure of what we believe and what is belief that came out of my struggle as a pastor's kid that that sort of grew into the second book and it's just it's for Christians who have questions and for Christians who don't have any questions but probably should because I think both of those are, are significant groups one is the the Christian who who can never stop asking and the other is the Christian who's too apathetic so. It, it seeks to draw those to the middle and find a place where mystery is okay, recognizing that we can't know everything about God, but there are some things we can. And where we can't know everything about God, we can have complete confidence in his character. So if you're a doubter, a questioner, if you find yourself in a position of, I don't know what questions are right and wrong, what's it okay to ask of God? This book is really written for, for those folks trying to uh, 
use some of my own journey, some of my own observations, some of some of those theological answers that I've that I've learned over the years to try to tie this together to say some of you can ask more questions, some of you can find answers for your questions, and all of us can find confidence in the character of God. Awesome. Well, Barnabas, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. A great conversation, and I think just really good insights into how we can understand um, you know, the pastor's kids in our lives and also how we can love them well. So thank you so much for being with us. Absolutely. I really appreciate you uh, having me on, and I appreciate the great conversation. Thanks again to Barnabas Piper for joining us this week as our special guest on the Church Leaders Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review us in iTunes. And consider sending this episode to someone you know who might be blessed by its message. Also, make sure to download the show notes for this episode at churchleaders.com forward slash podcast. The show notes always include resources mentioned in the show and links to some of our guests' top content on churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again next week. You've been listening to the Church Leaders Podcast. For articles, videos, and free resources that will help you lead better every day, visit our website, churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.